Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the critically acclaimed Streaming Club, the movie review podcast you're listening to right now. Thank you, Rodney. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Very descriptive. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. I don't need one. And uh, I, I was being cryptic in our opening because I feel like it's in the title. Like, we're streaming movies. <laughs> it's our it's our streaming club. Um, yeah. This was, uh, until just recently, part of our new film releases. Uh, we incorporated it during the pandemic when people were staying at home and watching a lot more on streaming. So we're catching up on classics. Now that the world is very slowly leaking back out to normalcy, mm-hmm. in a very disappointing sort of way, <laughs> uh, we're, we're splitting off. We're going to keep on uh, watching classic films on streaming, and uh, but we feel have like it be its own entity now. We feel like they deserve their own, their own, uh, uh, their own chapter here yeah. at the critically acclaimed network legacy library. Wow. <laughs> I'm just not talking good today. Welcome to the critically acclaimed legacy library. <laughs> should start selling books like oh, Matt Zoller's sites. It just be no, what we would have is we would just have like the scrap paper where we had all of our top ten lists and everything. Oh, and usually just, just like set up in a pile or get thrown I, away. I think I have an old we, notebook. We like we like laminate them and you can like check them out and like, ooh, look at that Whitney Seibold doodle. Yeah, I, I remember uh, going to see uh the Tim Burton exhibit oh, uh, yeah. at it was at LACMA, the the LA County Museum of Art, and um, it was uh, they were it was just sort of a, a big um, celebration of his art, and mm-hmm. it had like some of his uh, like props from some of his movies, mm-hmm. some of his own, own yeah. il, you know original illustrations and sculptures that he had done, but they were also trying to give like a whole uh, look at what his life was like, and they actually found like papers he wrote in the fourth grade wow. that his parents still had in the attic it's like why why do i need to see this this is not illuminating tim burton well, did you did artist. you read them maybe they did illuminate them like one of these days when i direct batman i'm gonna make sure it's nothing but the riddler we'll be like ooh, he changed his mind no <laughs> no it was just just him writing papers yeah. on a fourth grade level because he's in the fourth grade no i, I don't know yeah. they must have they they, like, they had their reasons like what? Why? What? What led Tim Burton into film? Well, he grew up in Burbank, and he lived near Disney, and he watched those movies, and he made. Then he that's, worked for Disney. It's, it's like it's like the most sure, uninteresting sure, origin. Story. I'm sure there was a little more to it than that, but yeah, yeah basically. But uh, um, but uh, speaking of uh, origin stories, go the, on. The film we're covering uh, this this week on the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, Library of Libraries. Uh, has a really interesting backstory, uh, it and it it was adapted from a novel, and it was such a notorious stinker that a book has been written about its making. There's a best-selling novel mm-hmm. that was in, led to the movie we're reviewing today on the streaming club, and that movie was such a disastrous production that it led to a best-selling non-fiction book. Mm. And I kind of want to see the movie based on that other book, because (laughs) that would probably be better than Brian De Palma's The Bonfire of the Vanities. He's a Wall Street tycoon. She's his Fifth Avenue mistress. They're in the right car, taking a wrong turn. Sherman Sherman! I'm a reporter craving a story. This is Peter Fallon, the has-been. In a city hungry for headlines. How did I get to be so important? You're not important. Just dinner. I'm the one who's driving the car, Sherman. Just sit back and watch the sparks fly. Go get them! The Bonfire of the Vanities. 
Uh, Some backstory in the Bonfire of the Vanities. Well, well, first of all, the title comes from like medieval poetry, like an an ancient Catholic tradition where you would um, burn the things that encouraged vanity. Vanity is a a deadly sin. So vice. uh, It is a vice. So yeah, burn your mirrors, burn your makeup, burn the things that you would make you take pride in your appearance because that is but a distraction from the wholesomeness of Christ. Uh, The original Uh, novel was written by Tom Wolfe, who you probably know from writing The the Right Stuff, uh, which is considered one of the best films about, like, sort of the, the space race and... Uh, but uh, it's, he was also just a, a really uh, interesting, hard-hitting, hard-hitting journalist, um, yeah. where he did a, a lot more uh, straightforward form of journalism. Um, uh, that was very, it was very literary. Yeah, he, he was a very literary journalist, and that was sort of a big uh, movement in journalism, uh, and like. I guess starting in like the 60s. Yeah, uh, but uh, his first novel was The Bonfire of the Vanities and was originally, in a very Dickensian way, serialized in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after the story had been completed, he did some rewriting and published it as a novel. The novel was a major bestseller. It was very celebrated. Some have called it one of the quintessential novels of the 1980s, at least in terms of the representation of American culture in that time. Yeah. Uh, uh, the story of, I'm just give you the quick gist of it, uh, is about a Wall Street broker, trader, millionaire, uh, who has it all, uh, is cheating on his wife, and uh, one night while he is out with his mistress, uh, they end up taking the wrong turn off of the highway and enter into <gasps> the wrong part of town. That is the black neighborhood. Yeah, they it's, end up... Uh, and, and, that, and that's very pointed. Yeah. This is a... a yeah. A, a takedown of like racist attitudes of wealthy white people. That's yeah. a big part of the novel. They uh, they panic. They freak out. They end up uh, committing a hit and run, and uh, they drive off. And the young man who has been run over ends up becoming part of a media firestorm thanks to a reporter who is on the outs and is looking for a salacious tale in order to get his career back in order. And uh, the Wall Street broker ends up becoming a media pariah. Uh, and uh, becomes like a tool for you know the mayor's office, the the church, and basically everyone in New York has something they want to gain out of this media frenzy, and that's the gist of the tale. Uh, as you can imagine, just from hearing that, it sounds like a there's a lot in that story, hmm. and b that is a tightrope walk. Well, I I think. This type of cultural satire, uh, it feels to me like it was a lot more common in the 1980s. Uh, it came out the same year as something like RoboCop, yeah. which is a really the salacious... Novel the novel. The, the novel the came out the, came out the same year as the movie RoboCop, and that yeah. is a, a very salacious satire mm-hmm. of privatization. Um, it was around the same time as Wall Street, the mm-hmm. Oliver Stone movie. Uh, uh, they live in which the yeah. rich are literally aliens who are um, trying to take us over and brainwash us into capitalist complacency. What year was American Psycho? The novel or the, the no- movie? The no- well, the, mo- the movie was 2000, but yeah. the novel was, was I think, uh, late 80s, early 90s. I think you're it right. Was, Let me double check. It was part of the same miasma anyway. Uh, and it, it, this was all... 91, so it came out right after. Right after. Yeah. Uh, it was all part of this, yeah, this sort of uh, miasma of criticism of Reagan culture. How wealth and emptiness and spectacle and uh, media manipulation became just sort of de rigueur. Mm-hmm. And Tom Wolfe was, was criticizing that. Uh, Brian De Palma either misunderstood (laughs) 
didn't understand what was going on with a story like that or was deliberately trying to change it into something uh, beholden to his own interests. I, you say that, mm. but having witnessed the film, and I'm a fan of Brian De Palma. I don't think everything he's done is great, but well, I think he's, he's done he, many he's great done, films. He's done some really awful movies. He's done some truly awful mm. films, but to his credit, he's also made some truly classic films, many of them the thriller genre, mm. films like uh, Body Double, Sisters, Raising Cain, which apparently he developed while working on Bonfire of the Vanities to keep his own sanity because it was that <laughs> because difficult for him. That, that bad a production. Raising Cain is super underrated. Uh, he's made a lot of really... Cl- the Untouchables is mm. one of my favorite uh, uh, cop mm. movies ever made. Uh, terrible History, great movie. Uh, and then he did Carrie. And he did Carrie, the mm-hmm. first Stephen King adaptation. And mm-hmm. um, so he's he's had a great career, and he's made some crap. And usually, well, I'm sorry, Phantom of the Paradise as well, so he can do comedy. Uh, yeah, he, but he has, he's also done, like, when, when he's uh, working for hire, he's a less interesting director. Yeah. Uh, Mission did, Impossible is good. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a weird, I think Mission Impossible is a weird beast. True. Like, I, I enjoy watching it because it feels, like, so terse and clinical, mm-hmm. but it's all, like, it's, but it's trying to sell itself as a blockbuster, which mm-hmm. it clearly isn't interested in being. It's kind of a takedown, actually, of the yeah. original series, which is basically just like, yay, the American government, and, mm-hmm. and the, in Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible, like, the villain is the hero from the original series mm. who kind of only existed in a morally corrupt paradigm. And when you remove the cold war and take away any sort of like moral compass, we realized he was always a monster. Yeah. And that was actually really controversial. The fans of the show, we forget about it now because now the movies are more popular than the series was. But yeah, that was like, I'm trying to think of an example here. That would be like, if they did, if they did a Star Trek reboot and Kirk was the villain, yeah, 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 that would be pretty controversial to mm-hmm. a lot of people. And if the movie was good enough, a future generation wouldn't give a shit. Yeah, and yeah. that's kind of uh, what happened with Mission Impossible. Uh, the, he also did like Mission to Mars. If never you remember saw, that I never movie, never saw that one. It's it's. It's not good. I've heard it's, it's not yeah. good. He did, um, what was that one he did with Nicolas Cage? Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes, which is not... It's, it's, Sty- stylish, but not, not an interesting movie. Brian De Palma, and he'll do it here, Brian De Palma is, found, is extremely fond of whirling, dervish, look ma, watch me dive, uh, cinematic uh, uh, show-offmanship. He's, he, uh, he's very fond of that Steadicam. Yes, he, he is. He loves very long, sustained takes with Steadicams, mm-hmm. and he's been very good, and puts this in multiple movies. Uh, so the split screen, yeah. where he'll have two char- like two scenes playing simultaneously mm-hmm. on the screen, and they will interact in, in an interesting yeah. sort of way. Very few filmmakers mm-hmm. are actively keeping that alive, and very few filmmakers have ever done it as well as mm-hmm. Brian De Palma. Ma, but um, uh, where was I going with this? So like he'll he'll has a lot of mm-hmm. uh, broad cinematic trickery, but very rarely has it been done to as little effect as you'll see it in The Bonfire of the Vanities. The book was originally going to be adapted by Mike Nichols. Mm. Mike Nichols, the director of films like The Graduate and The Birdcage, uh, is a funny director. And I think that might have been a good idea. We, the prompt for this week, by the way, wasn't comedy films on HBO Max. It was drama films on HBO Max. Mm. This is in the drama section. Because either... They were trying to make a drama and they failed, or they were trying to make a comedy and they failed, and it's indistinguishable from a bad drama. Mm. Um, I think it's just a bad drama mm-hmm. because this is a film that uh, st- st- 
stoops to cheap moralizing. I'll, I'll just say it outright. The Bonfire of the Vanities, the film, is god-awful. It's really bad. It, it, is, it is as bad as its yeah. reputation. You, you'll find a couple of good performances mm. in the supporting cast here and there. Yeah. A couple of people who knew what kind of movie they were in, even though apparently Brian De Palma did not. Uh, but literally... Almost the entire movie it feels like a huge miscalculation. Mm. The timing feels off. The performances feel off. Uh, like, Tom Hanks is playing his character like he's straight out of uh, the Hudsucker proxy. Like, mm. he's playing it really broad in a way that, like, very few other characters are. And, and uh, it's really weird and distracting well, to watch. What happened in casting Tom Hanks, who is uh, he's an, an incredibly sympathetic actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and That's why like, they cast him. They thought the character was unlikable, so they got the guy who just does big a movie. Know. But, um, but uh, yeah, they cast Tom Hanks. Really widely bad uh, casting because mm. this is about a, a, a soulless yuppie asshole mm. who uh, is cheating on Kim Cattrall. What? And uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and uh, he. he, he it, and uh, nobody and nobody thinks anything of him. Yeah. Uh, and his wife, uh, when he goes to see his dad, his dad doesn't think a lot of him. Uh, and his wife mm -hmm. describes what he does as like doing essentially doing nothing. Mm -hmm. It's like you're. And uh, in fact, uh, she there's this speech about how uh, describing what he does. How uh, well he like takes cake from one person, gives it to somebody else, and gets to keep a little crumb on the way. And if yeah. he does that enough, he gets to make a big pile of crumbs. That's all he does. Is he collects crumbs of other people's He's cake. a crummy guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, he, of course... Which is, is actually, like, a, it's actually a pretty astute uh, observation about how that gig works. Uh, it, it's how it works, but of yeah. course it, it kind of humiliates him uh, yeah. because he, he feels like he's doing something kind of important. He's full of himself. He feels like he can't be touched. Uh, I feel like Something like The Wolf of Wall Street really understands yeah. the moral depravity oh, a little th bit better. This, the Wolf of Wall uh, Street is exactly what the Bonfire of the Vanities thinks it is. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's that which is which is hilarious, well, but it's also about the depravity. Martin Scorsese is a highly moral filmmaker. Mm. Uh, people forget that because a lot of his movies feature like a lot of violence and a lot of horrifying mm. things. But at the end of the day, a lot of them are basically Catholic parables. Mm. Uh, and uh, as a result, he knows who to be mad at. Like, we can laugh at them, sometimes even with them, mm. but there's never a misguided sense of, oh, they're so great. Yeah, and I feel like The Bonfire of the Vanities as a movie, I've never read the book, but mm. the, the movie is hates these characters, but also thinks they're really fun. Well, in, in casting Tom Hanks, it it's, doesn't just think they're fun, it thinks he's he's worthy of sympathy. Yeah, he makes him and a martyr his, by the end. I'm yeah, like, his, no, he's a His dick. arc is... Uh, he goes into a bad neighborhood with his mistress. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, the, quote unquote bad neighborhood, bad neighborhood. Nothing even that bad happens to him. It's, it's, no, it's they, just, or rather they, yeah. yeah, I even describe it as a bad neighborhood. It's, it's just, in fact, in the movie, they, they pull off the off ramp and Melanie Griffith, uh, her character says, okay. she actually says out loud, where are all the white people? So this yeah, is establishing that these are racist people. She's, she in particular uh, is a spectacularly racist and mm -hmm. Tom Hanks is no better. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, he, he doesn't use any slurs, but he just sort of rolls with it. There, there's, he's, there's this clear uh, absolute panic that they have, yeah, exactly, that they've yeah. never been around this many people who weren't white before, mm -hmm. let alone rich, and they're just terrified of everywhere that they go. Yeah, yeah. That so, they're, so they're, they're, you know, there are people surrounding the car, and mm -hmm. they're not white. Yeah, the, the, ah. oh, oh, no. And yeah, they even say phrases like, these people, like these, yeah. all these racist dog, you know, dog whistles, are yeah. just, they're just shouting them out. And so he's a racist character. Uh, he, uh, his mistress 
runs over a young black boy. Mm-hmm. And they flee the scene, hit and run. Mm-hmm. And his concern is... There was a is, bit of an altercation, going, but nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. Yeah. yeah. They, like they're, they're, they, they was they kind of terse, but that was about they, it. They weren't under any kind of direct threat. Yeah. They were just afraid of black people. Yeah. And they run, uh, run over a black person. Yeah. And they flee the scene. And he's worried that he's going to get caught. Yeah. And the his arc is... It eventually comes out what he did. Mm-hmm. Well, specifically, to be fair, and and I don't mean this to be fair as in he's innocent, but technically speaking, she was driving at the moment they hit the guy. So he's in this weird position where in order to protect this mistress that he has, he's throwing himself on top of the hand grenade. Hmm. Uh, if anything comes out, he's the one who's getting responsible for it because it was his car and he's not but, uh, saying anything. And, uh, and she convinces is... him, don't talk to anybody because then I'll get in trouble. But uh, so he's he's a terrible person. He's covering up a terrible crime. Mm-hmm. And the arc of the movie, according to De Palma, is that in becoming the center of this media firestorm, this like object of ire, he, that's where he finds his soul. And he is now a victim. Right. And he's depicted as being a victim, and he is the one that needs to be saved and redeemed. No. No, that's not the story. That's the story De Palma thinks this is. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's, like the, the, only that's the role Tom Hanks is playing. You could have maybe gotten away with that if by the end of the movie, Tom Hanks wasn't just trying to get away with... The, by the way, the, the kid they run over, in a coma, but alive. Yeah. Uh, so this isn't technically murder, but it is really, really bad. No one's denying that. Um, he, he, he's not, it's, instead of just like, oh, he'll like get away with it. Because he's definitely at least an accessory. Mm. He certainly aided and abetted covering up a crime. He's definitely guilty of shit. Uh, if at the end of the movie, he had gone so far as to like burn it all down. Mm. Like use everything he knew about every skeleton and every closet and like destroyed all of Wall yeah, Street. D- Maybe then... I would buy this whole he redeemed himself shit. Or, or, or because he, he's from yeah. an inherently corrupt uh, world. Mm. And we see that over the course of the film as people immediately turn on him whenever it's to their benefit. Uh, if he had seen that and like all of his eyes were open, like he put mm. on the sunglasses from They Live and finally understood just how myopic he's been his entire life. Mm. And but, then destroyed it, but maybe. Then, but, maybe yeah, you could have gotten and, away with that. But in, in such a way where... Uh, he doesn't become a good person. Yeah. Like, he is actually sort of a, a, a villainous character who's now destroying the system that raised him. But I would have believed yeah. that. Yeah. Kind of like it's Alex Large kind of way or something yeah. like that. I would have believed and, and then he, And yeah. then by the end, he ends up, like, open, openly committing murder, but he ends up, like, murdering other villains. It's this interesting moral parable, right? I've never really seen Tom uh, Hanks play that villainous a character. Uh, he played a villain in a movie called The Circle, uh, which was... Yeah, I never saw that one. Is he, also quite a bad movie. Is he, is he like... Really despicable on that, though. Like, well, that's he, a, or is he's, he just like a corrupt like business guy? He's not a corrupt business guy. He's like a villainous Steve Jobs, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm definitely mining data, and I'm, so you, I'm up so to you mean up Steve to, Jobs. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's no. No, there, there's. Uh, I yeah. think we're still in the era where Steve Jobs is sort of like a, a cheap villain for screenwriters. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he plays that kind of character, and in casting yeah. him, uh, I think it was kind of wise because he's supposed to be benevolent to the world, yeah. and you're not supposed to suspect him of anything. Yeah. Unfortunately, that movie's so poorly made that it you know doesn't. It's not very that's interesting. Weird. I'm actually trying to think of it now because again, Tom Hanks, funny actor, and this mm. is still at a stage in his career where. 
he'd done some interesting work, but he was almost exclusively known for comedy. Mm-hmm. He'd been nominated for an Oscar for Big, but that was still considered a comedy. Uh, he would he would do Philadelphia a year or two later, and that mm-hmm. would completely change his career around. Um, but at this point in his career, he's he's the funny guy, and he's a very funny guy. He later proved that he was a really great uh, a drama. Is this the worst Tom Hanks role you've ever seen? Because I'm uh, thinking about his entire filmography. Yeah, from he knows you're alone. This this first movie, it's a slasher. He's actually really good in that. Mm. Like right off the bat, nailed it. Uh, I've I don't think I've ever seen a film where Tom Hanks is worse. Not just giving a bad performance, not just miscast, just completely wrong. Everything um, about him is wrong in this yeah. in this story. He uh, he's really trying in Cloud Atlas. I don't think all, like, he's playing like eight roles in that yeah, movie. Some of them work better than others. Yeah, yeah, some some he's that, really yeah. good at. Some not so much. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I that. Yeah, th- this is I mean, even not... the Lady Killers is not a good movie. He's funny. He's great in that movie. Yeah, he's really fun. I don't yeah. think it's. I think the timing of that movie is just ruins all the comedy. We, but we, he's uh, good in it. We even go to this day. We go to restaurants and say we must have waffles forthwith. <laughs> In the Tom Hanks style from the Lady Killers. Yeah. Yeah, this, this, he is completely like, miscast. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis kind of understands what he's doing mm. in some scenes, yeah. but. Bruce Willis we're, plays the reporter who's. He's is the like, narrator of the, of the movie. He's the narrator. We see at the beginning, there's this actually really bravura shot at the beginning of the movie mm. where uh, Bruce Willis is arriving in the basement of the World Trade Center. Uh, and is taking on this one big epic one like through like all the behind the scenes like this big award ceremony where he he's about to get an award elevators and goes he's basically hallways. getting an award for writing the bonfire of the vanities except mm-hmm. in the world of the novel it's a true story uh, and so we're seeing all of this stuff it's kind of a shot that leads to nowhere it's just De Palma showing off uh, it had to do with they, they had to like hastily change the beginning of the movie so they mm. came up with a, an excuse for Brian De Palma to show off, basically, in order to just sort of mm. open the movie with a bang. But um, Bruce Willis plays the the reporter who turned this thing into a media circus, and then over the course of the film realized that Tom Hanks, though a douchebag, mm. uh, didn't actually hurt the kid. Like he wasn't actually driving, and yeah. so he's trying to sort of make things right. Uh, and this again, was a, if, if that was the yeah. perspective, if it stayed with him, maybe that would have been and better. He, and he was manipulating everything, and he realized this guy's mm. terrible, but mm. he doesn't deserve to be punished in this sort of way. That might have been stronger. Yeah. You get this sort of. Uh, there's a wonderful, acidic Billy Wilder film called Ace in the Hole. Yeah, I was I was just about to bring up yeah. Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole stars Kirk Douglas as a really seedy reporter who mm. uh, comes across a mining disaster. And a bunch of guys are trapped in a mine. And Kirk Douglas, in an attempt to elongate the tragedy so that he can sell more papers than just a couple of days, uh, does what he can to make it harder to rescue them. Boy, is that film evil. But great. <laughs> it's really, really great. But it's, a, it's about the evil. It's yeah. about how this guy is, mm-hmm. is morally bankrupt and yeah. how reporting is more about manipulation than it is about simply stating the facts. There's so many brilliant movies about like evil reporter. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success uh, yes. is incredible. Ooh, yes. uh, but of course there are lots of films about hmm. noble reporting as well. And Tom Hanks has been in a few. The Post, for example. Um, but uh, in any case, the character was originally written to be British and they offered the role to John Cleese. Uh, oh. who, had, who had turned it down. or hmm. um, uh, And a couple other people, like a couple other comedians I think as well. Uh, they'd worked on it, and uh, apparently this is another thing where the studio was said, uh, Bruce Willis was just in Die Hard. Let's get Bruce Willis. And 
On one hand, Bruce Willis was known for comedy. He got his big start in Moonlighting. Mm. On the other hand, no one paid to see his comedies in movie theaters. Yeah. Like, the only, like, hit comedy he'd been in, he wasn't in. It was Look Who's Talking. You can't see his face. <laughs> like, his other stuff, like Mystery Date. No one gave a shit. Mm. So, was it Mystery Date that was no, his? it was um, Blind Date. Blind Date. Mystery Date was, like, Ethan Hawke, right? I, I don't remember. That was, um, uh, the... Sh- was that the sure thing? No, that was... No, the sure thing was John Cusack. John Cusack. Yeah. I think it was Mystery Day. Right. I know. Um, so Bruce Willis was basically cast because he was big at the time. Tom Hanks was cast because he was big at the time and likable. And apparently this was a pretty common motif where the studio was just trying to get whoever they could get. Well, we've talked before about how um, the art, or rather the artlessness of Hollywood casting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember a casting agent came to our my film school and talked about it, and uh, they said, "We said, you know, how do you do it? Do you like sort of read the script and really sort of get into the head and try to figure out who would like has a history playing these types who of would characters?" Be the most interesting actor. And they the said, role. "We we have a list of mm-hmm. the most bankable stars in Hollywood, and we start at the top." Yep. That's it. Yep. There is no other. They they just go with the biggest star they can, and whoever shows up first, that's who they hire. Yep. And and if somebody is willing, but they're asking for too high a price, they go to the next name. Yep. That's it. That is it's it, really it's, uncomplicated. Yeah, so <laughs> I've, I've like when I was like working in development of places, I've there was done things where like, hey, uh, we need to update the list. Go to the IMDb website and search for the most searched for actors. Yeah. And give us everyone within the age range of like twenty to forty. Mm. Like that was it. That's the list. And if they're good, so be it. And if they're bad, they don't care. A lot of the time. Yeah. There's a lot of filmmakers who have enough clout to actually get who they want. Yeah, I remember. But that's, when you're in a studio system, you have to appease the people who are giving you the money. And they probably didn't get their money by having really subtle taste in film. They're, probably, <laughs> right. they're money people. They, they want binary yeah, so, systems. This is successful. This is not. I, Tom Hanks makes money. Bruce Willis makes money. Ergo, we put Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis in the same movie. It will, it will make money, right? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> That's not necessarily how it works. I, I do love the stories when, like, supporting actors or smaller actors, like, uh, I... Direct, directors will fight to have them in the movie. Yeah. Whether or not they have clout, the director will really sort of put their foot down and they'll yeah. make compromises to get that actor. Uh, and my favorite case of this is actually Hellboy. Um, oh. uh, Guillermo del Toro directed Hellboy. It's, it's a comic book movie about a demon guy. Yeah. And he really wanted Ron Perlman. Well, that's, not, he that's, says, the, that's the protagonist of the film. He's the protagonist of the movie and he's like, okay, what other stars can we get? Can we get some wrestlers in here? And Guillermo del Toro said, no, I watch Beauty and the Beast and all these monster movies that he plays monsters well, in. Well, he already I worked want, with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, I want Ron Perlman. Yeah. He's like, well, you can't have Ron Perlman. He's never, he doesn't open big blockbusters. No, Ron Perlman. Yeah. Okay, fine, Ron Perlman, but we're going to take off the, the cement hand. No, cement hand. <laughs> Does he have to have a tail? Yes, he has to have a tail. <laughs> like, he, he needed Hellboy to like look a very specific way yeah. with a specific actor and he got it yeah and you know what I like that Hellboy that's pretty good I, I like the, the way that Hellboy better, looks I think both good um, I, I don't like the second Hellboy I like uh, the first Hellboy that's fine <laughs> uh, but I think and there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit stories about that sometimes they work out good sometimes mm. they don't uh, here's a here's a classic example here's an interesting exa- uh, case uh, A Time to Kill Mm-hmm. Uh, big blockbuster oh, right. John um, Grisham adaptation. It, it wasn't Matthew McConaughey at first. It was originally the, the Time to Kill, directed by Joel Schumacher, starring. It was big Matthew McConaughey's big breakout role, the first time he got to star in a movie. Uh, but originally, it had been cast with Woody Harrelson. John oh, Grisham would have been quite a different film. Would have been very. I think it would have been a good film, but it would have been a very different film. John Grisham 
uh, I forget the exact details. Like he knew some people who were involved in uh, some of the like handful of like post natural born killers attempts at copycat crimes. Mm-hmm. So he really didn't like Woody Harrelson. Oh, okay. So he said no, no Woody Harrelson. And so what they decided to do was Joel Schumacher fought said, "Hey, listen, we cast Matthew McConaughey in this small role in the movie as a Klansman." He, wasn't he the Kiefer Sutherland role? Yeah, yeah. Right. He, he's a small role. He's yeah. playing. He's playing a Klansman. He's a bad guy, but he's devilishly handsome, super charismatic. I know he can do this role. Why don't we give him the lead role? We still have all these other huge stars in the movie: Sandra Bullock, Kevin Spacey. Back when that meant something, Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. Like this is a good cast. Uh, we can afford to have our protagonist be this new guy, and we can even use that as like a marketing strategy. Comes in this hot new actor. And they went for it, and they ended up just casting Kiefer Sutherland in that role. It's one of the few movies Kiefer Sutherland and Donald Sutherland are both in. They have no scenes together. It's kind of funny. Just a coincidence. But yeah, that was Joel Schumacher having faith that Matthew McConaughey, who had been cast as, like, what, the tenth lead in that movie? (laughs) All of a sudden, elevated to the lead. Matthew McConaughey kills in that movie. He's great in that He's really good. Like, there's there's a reason that made him a star. Got a big Oscar speech at the end that yeah, he just he, nails. Yeah, he's great. Mm. He's one of his better roles. Like, he's really, really good. So it can work. And with something like The Bonfire of the Vanities, you're running into the situation where there's a whole bunch of people who are cast simply because they were big at the time. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, there's an interesting scenario where Morgan Freeman plays a judge in this movie. And Morgan Freeman was a known actor. He'd already uh, received... Academy Award nominations for Street Smart, which if you've never seen Street Smart with Christopher mm. Reeve, holy shit, that's a good movie. Uh, he was also, I th- wasn't he nominated for Driving Miss Daisy? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, yeah. so Driving Miss Daisy had already come out, won Best Picture. He was a known commodity. Everyone, very well-respected actor. And that would only solidify over the 90s as he would do stuff like The Shawshank Redemption, but um, and Seven, and so on. And they cast him as a judge, uh, as written, the judge was not a black guy. The, the judge, uh, they originally wanted to cast Walter Matthau, and Walter Matthau wanted a million dollars, so they said, no, we'll get Morgan Freeman. No, you pay, pay Walter Matthau. You should, well, first off, uh, if, Walter if you, Matthau's worth a million dollars. I was but, about to say, if, yeah. if, if, you, if you really want Walter Matthau, you, yeah, you, get, you pay his price. Yeah, <laughs> he's, 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 he's worth he's, it. Yeah. He's amazing. He would have been really, really good in this. But the role was written, this is a movie that is very much about racial tension. Yeah. And... As, and we'll talk about it. As the story progresses, boy, does it not handle that theme well. And it's not actually really all. insulting uh, and arguably really racist. And mm-hmm. the concern, because there was concern at the time that the movie would, and the story, would come across as really racist, they cast Morgan Freeman to help mitigate that. Where here's mm-hmm. a character who is in a position of authority and dignity and who, at the end of the movie, gets a big speech about human decency, which calls really flat. Oh, God. It's not, it's, it's it's not really, Morgan Freeman. It's kind of the worst part of the movie. It's, it's yeah. not Morgan Freeman's fault, but like he's mm-hmm. given an unworkable speech. Yeah. Um, and Morgan Freeman's really, really good in it, but clearly this role is intended for someone to be part of a racist system and not Morgan Freeman. Mm. And so that completely changes the role and it completely changes the vibe. And frankly, it ultimately hinders the movie's message about how shitty and racist the whole legal system is. And... And rather than point out that it's uh, it's shitty and racist and favors white people, uh, that's brought up. Yes, it is. But uh, there's also... And this this is just awful. There's... uh, uh, He's like a um, 
a pastor. There's a pastor character. It's a pa- not, not Morgan Freeman. Another not Morgan. Yeah, another Freeman. character. I forget who plays. I'll look it up. Uh, who uh, he's a black pastor. Uh, he has a black congregation. And they are uh, outraged that this rich white guy is going to get away with uh, the crime of running over a young black boy. He's played by John Hancock. You might mm-hmm. remember him from uh, Roots, The Next Generations, but he did a lot of TV okay. uh, in particular. He, he was vaguely familiar. I, I'm not... Yeah, character could, actor could, who could name him, did a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, This was but, actually his last... He was the last movie. He died in 1992. But the, the film presents the black community as... Like a mob, yeah. Like, like they're they're the ones demanding justice, and they're the ones depicted as sort of being unreasonable. It's all racially motivated mm-hmm. for them. There's a lot of opportunism, uh, yeah. That's, the, that's presented like here's some here's here's a young man, and he just gets run over by these rich white people. Th- that sucks. That's a terrible situation. That kid is the martyr here. That yeah. kid's mom, who is suffering, is a victim here. And then they become exploited by this reverend who is trying to manipulate the media in order to initially, it seems, uh, you know, manipulate the political system and make serious gains for the community. And at first you're like, okay, well, that might be... It's a, l- a little dodgy, but, little dodgy, but noble ends. Yeah. But then we find out later on that the ultimate grand scheme is to sue the hospital for mistreating the kid... And when the mom is like crying over her son's like comatose body and he's just like, no, I know your son is comatose, but what if we had $10 million? She immediately stops crying. And she's just like, well, I do like buying things. And I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? It's pointing, it's, this is a movie that is saying any cry for racial justice is suspect. Yeah. And the white people Mm -hmm. are now, uh, and there's many conversations about this. Uh, one of them from the mayor, played by F. Murray Abraham. Who was uncredited yeah. because of a contract dispute. Oh, God. He wanted yeah. to be above the title. They mm. said, no, we already have a lot of actors above the title. And F. Murray Abraham said, fuck you, don't put my name on your movie. Fine, fine. <laughs> yeah. And, and He's actually good in it. He gives a very uh, good comedic performance, I yeah. think. Uh, it's But it's a really horrible kind of role. Yeah. Where he is now in this position where he has to find a white savior who is being pilloried by the black community to save in order to make himself look good to the rich white people who are funding his campaign. So initially, and now, now that, that is a yeah. good, uh, sort of a, a good, uh, scoundrel character to put in a satire, isn't it? That feels like a whole season of the wire. Yeah. And you could do yeah. that. Like the idea that here's someone who initially is throwing Tom Hanks to the wolves legally speaking, mm. uh, just because they want to show... Morgan Freeman has a speech about this. Like, 99% of the people that are being pushed through the legal system are people of color. Yeah. Uh, but in an election year, they want to at least show that they're not showing complete favoritism, and so they want one high-profile mm. rich white person to throw in jail, and that becomes, like, the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Where, like, okay, well, so we, you know, we this- sacrificed Tom Hanks... But now every other rich white person gets to get away with everything. And mm. that's really fucked up and kind of dramatically intriguing. And yeah, they don't gonna, really commit write, to that, do they? If you're going to write a story about corruption, yes, address that. Um, yeah. But this isn't... There, we're trying to put way too much sympathy onto Tom Hanks. Yes. And we're also casting a lot of aspersions on racial justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the concept. The very concept of racial justice yeah. and how those seeking racial justice are disingenuous. And, yeah. they're, and they're seeking it because 
Golly, they're troublemakers, aren't they? I think they even use the word troublemakers, which is a huge racist bell. Yeah. That's like that that word. I don't think they use the U word, uh, but... um, Yeah. I I know uh, what you mean, yeah. We're not going to say that shit I don't want to say it out loud. We're not going to say that shit out loud. Hugely racist word. Yeah. Uh, But um, but yeah, that's the implication that this movie is making. Yeah. I don't think Brian De Palma even... Was even thinking about it. I think what Brian he, De Palma he, thinks he's yeah. getting at, and this is just speculation, obviously, yeah. but I feel like what Brian De Palma thought he was getting at is he's telling this story yeah. about how literally all of society is corrupted by yeah. avarice. Yeah. Like, whether you have money or merely want money, that's a level of corruption that can affect us all. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's an interesting story to tell, but when you undermine legitimate real issues... In the process, you're not telling a story that mocks wealth. You're telling a story that mocks people who have real problems. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of the problems. That's the biggest problem with this movie is that it's not sure who's angry at. Mm-hmm. It's clearly angry. It's clearly angry. It's, there's clearly yeah. like there's clearly frustration and rage and mounting tension and like scenes where like Tom Hanks is running around his million dollar apartment with a shotgun while everyone's like not sure if this is funny or not mm-hmm. and if they should run. Like and and if he was like l- losing his shit and shooting mm-hmm. holes and everybody just sort of laughed it off, that'd be good, like a good nightmare sequence, like yeah. something out of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And the idea is, it doesn't matter how mad or violent you are. If you're a rich white guy, you just you, you're that's just part of your your world. And if you want to like listen to like, we don't often talk a lot about the score for a movie mm-hmm. uh, when we review films like at at length because typically scores are quite competent and you can just sort of say like, and they they did it well, and I don't need to go into a lot of detail. But listen to Dave Grusin's. Uh, award-winning composer. I'm not saying he's a, he's a terrible composer, but this is a, clearly a film where nobody knew what anyone else was doing. Listen to Dave Grusin's score in that scene. That is a scene where Tom Hanks is completely at the end of his rope. He's not sure if he says he wants to kill himself or kill everybody else in the room. He's being thrown out of his apartment. He's a pariah in, in the media. He's lost his wife. He's lost his kids. Uh, by the way, his daughter is played by Kirsten Dunst in her first performance. That's right. <laughs> uh, trivia, not really important. She's fine. He only has two scenes. But um, he, he's lost everything. Mm. And he's completely at the end of his rope. And he's running around this room with a shotgun. And people don't know how to respond to him. And the music, when he finally gets everyone to leave his apartment, is triumphant. As though he has achieved something. As though there is some great moral truth that has been unveiled. No. That's not what's going on in that scene. On no level Mm. is that a rational interpretation of what's going on with that scene. The musical score in a film is like a highlighter. It sort of makes sure that certain elements of the storyline are underlined or in italics. Where you just sort of emphasize the emotional significance of a scene sometimes mm-hmm. you're selling it exactly as it is the uh, scene where uh, uh henry thomas says goodbye to et it's a sad you know incredible coming of age moment john williams sells it as such it is beautiful sometimes it's an ironic counterpoint mm. here it's just wrong like imagine you, you the end of it, you did it they did it incorrectly like imagine if at the end of et we've, we've you've seen et or you mm. know the scene you've seen it like reference and stuff where like you know, I'm going to miss you forever, E.T. And E.T.'s like, I'll be right here, kid. And you're sort of like, oh, that's nice. Like, if you imagine if 
I can't do a T-Swoy, so I didn't bother. Imagine if that scene, <laughs> instead of having that sweeping John Williams, like, ah, mm. imagine if it was like the Benny Hill theme. Like, whole scene changes, doesn't it? I, uh, I, I've, I've seen, and you can find experiments like this yeah. on YouTube. That, that scene from E.T., you can find, there's a funny clip on YouTube where somebody just removed the score and oh, added, yeah. like, ambient sound effects. And it's just awkward. And it's just, like, like it's really slow moving, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, you hear a dog barking in the distance. And <laughs> you hear, like, E.T.'s feet on the ramp as he goes back up, playing, 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 playing. It's like the, the most, it, it becomes yeah. this really banal scene. Yeah. Because that's, that scene is about the music. And maybe uh, if you'd seen the whole movie, you would be so emotionally invested that you would be less distracted by that. Or, but that's why we have the score yeah. to make sure it's a shortcut. It gets you to that emotional involvement that you would have if you were there. Here, what's the emotional involvement we have in that Tom Hanks scene? It ain't triumph. Yeah, it's desperation. It's fear. Yeah, it's panic. There, there's a, and there's a lot to, and th- this still happens from time to time when a, yeah. a bad score will underline the wrong part about a scene. I remember uh, mm-hmm. when. Um, uh, the the latest Wonder Woman film came out. There's a yeah. scene where uh, the Kristen Wiig character uh, beats up somebody who had sexually assaulted her earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And and it's depi- because of the music in that scene. It's depicted as this sort of v- turn to villainy moment. God, for she's her. done something so like, she's horrible. Done so hard. She, she beat up a guy who assaulted her and might have killed her for all we know. Yeah, she she defended uh, herself and she didn't kill and, him. And, like so, like this is not her turning evil. This is her gaining power. Yeah, like he's got no, my sympathy in this scene. If if she, if she beat that guy up and then like like pulled his brain out with her bare hands, it's yeah. like okay, now something's changed. We, a bit yeah. far. Like yeah. yeah, maybe that's a step. But and, like, and also yeah, yeah you, you did something kind of grotesque. Like if if yeah. you wanted to sell that she's gone over the line, <laughs> change that during the no, scene. No, you, but you know, the actual change, righteous if, anyway. That's, if you want to change that, if you want to change that scene so that it's heroic mm. or that it's uh, so that it's evil, mm. have her not beat up an attempted sexual assaulter. Yeah, have her beat up like a some guy, a, a different some, guy, some yeah. random person. Like that so, would be it. Like a, a guy who just bumped into her on the street. And, yeah, like, then she, she started a fight. She like, starts a fight with him and nearly kills him. That maybe you could get away with, but we know he tried to attack her earlier and he would have if and, Wonder and, Woman hadn't stopped her. And starts doing it again. Too. Yeah, he so, starts clearly, attacking her again. so clearly this is a pattern of behavior. This guy is a problem. You're on my... St- I'm on your side, man. Wonder yeah. Woman should be on should be on your side too. Like, mm. the whole scene's fucked up. But again, it's a perfect example. You're absolutely right. Where the, s- the music is telling a very different story than what we're seeing on screen. And it's confusing, and, and it's the, weird, and it's showing that people are not on the same page here. The, the score for The Bonfire of the Vanities is full of these heroic crescendos. Yeah. You don't put heroic crescendos in a, in a satire. No. Uh, un- unless I, you're I, using them ironically. Yeah, and they're not. They're, no. They mean it. Mm. There's this whole, like... At the end of the movie, where Tom Hanks like perjures himself in order to reveal the truth, not an not an uninteresting way to end the film, but like it's it is sad what's happening here. It is gross what's he, happening here. He perjures himself to reveal that uh, to, in order to throw his mistress under the bus. Yeah, and he gets off the hook, mm-hmm. and Melanie Griffith never pays any prices that we know of. Not in the movie. It's never mentioned. Yeah, like the as far as we know, she got off scot free. He has a recording of her admitting that she was driving the car and she hit the kid. And And unfortunately, some plot machinations. Somebody was bugging their apartment. There's this weird thing actually, and I and I wonder how much of this. I wonder if someone actually saw this movie and was trying to like 
ruined the bonfire of the vanities more because there's this whole plot point where uh tom hanks has this recording that someone had illegally took of mm-hmm. melanie griffith like in her apartment because they were trying to prove she was doing something else no it, it uh, was it was a subletting scheme yeah they it was a, they're to ca- ca- catch her at somebody something she else. was staying in someone else's sublet mm-hmm. and she wasn't supposed to and the landlord had bugged her apartment in order to prove that she was living there illegally all of that is wrong and shouldn't have been done but in any case um loud subway um, <laughs> you can hear the train. Yeah, the we, have, we have an elevated train near our. Uh, it's actually not a subway; it's an elevated train. But anyway, uh, where was it? Where was it going with? So, uh, so he has a recording of Melanie Griffith saying that she did it. However, his lawyer says, "Okay, here's the thing, though. This recording was not taken by you. It was taken illegally, and we cannot uh, submit it in court." Now, different states have different laws about how legal a recording of someone is. Yeah, how, as, how, as evidence. As yeah. evidence. But um, from, I'm pretty sure that if you weren't responsible for illegally recording it, it can still be accepted in court. Because that was a major plot point in the movie The Rainmaker. That's right. Where yeah. as long but, as you weren't responsible. Like I remember really liking it's, that one. It's a good movie. It's not the best John Grisham movie, but it's a very good movie. And mm. it's a very legally accurate movie. Like I've talked to... Um, from actual lawyers. Well, I, I, I haven't talked to them. I was thinking if I actually interviewed someone. I thought I did, but no, I was just remembering something else. No, I've, I've read stuff and like mm. seen interviews with lawyers where they say The Rainmaker is one of the most accurate depictions of the legal system in the movies. Mm. Uh, and uh, But yeah, that's the whole thing where if you were not responsible for illegally acquiring evidence, but the evidence exists anyway, mm-hmm. you can still submit that because it's still real. Mm. So... I'm not sure that would apply in New York, and maybe if someone's a lawyer who's listening, you can tell us whether or not that's true. But I'm pretty sure that because they weren't responsible for illegally recording someone, that's still submittable. Mm-hmm. It's still admissible in court. But in any case, so in order to introduce this in court, rather than introduce it into evidence, say, hey, we have a recording of Melanie Griffith saying she did it, he just plays it in the middle of her deposition. Mm. And I'm like, you can't do that at best. The best you can hope for right now is a mistrial. Yeah. Because you totally fucked up the system. You totally fucked up the, the mm. order and everything. This was not supposed to happen. So you've just screwed yourself into a mistrial at best. But, now, they uh, probably won't pursue it because there's evidence yeah. that she did but it afterwards. But, like, it's still – it's not the ending you're looking for. Uh, it, but the way the film presents it, he plays that recording in court with, yeah. without being prompted. Yeah. Just sort of hits a button in the middle you know, middle yeah. of somebody talking. And it's queued up to something, like, embarrassing about his penis, by the way. Mm. Like, it's about, like, oh, yeah, it's, I can't – my penis isn't, isn't good for sex today. And she's like, that's okay. That's the way I like it. And he's like, this is a weird bit. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Why didn't you queue it up to the – part where she was admitting a, she, she tried to commit murder why didn't you commit to the why would you queue it up at the part but uh, why would you do that but yeah what, what so happens, morgan judge morgan freeman calls them up to the bench and says is this your recording and says yes it is he's not on the stand yeah but he lies right to the judge well they face. say technically you're still under oath which i don't know how true that is but i guess mm. he's basically saying if you lie to me you would be legally culpable yeah. so yeah. so um, he is he is putting himself on the line but yeah he, yeah. he, he says yes it's mine and and right then judge bangs the gal and says nope He's off the hook. Yeah. That's it. I'm allowed to do that for some reason. Yeah. And then everyone's mad. And then Morgan Freeman gives a speech about human decency, which could not come across as less sincere if Morgan Freeman was dressed like a clown. Like it just, it's so false. I will say this. Morgan Freeman is such a damn good actor. Yes. That he sells it with sincerity. Yeah. There's no eye roll. No, he he's not. 
coloring it in such a way where there's like some something shifty going on or he doesn't care. In another better movie, yeah. I would believe every second of that speech because yeah. he's a great actor. In this movie, it doesn't fly. There's yeah, nothing yeah. about this movie that suggests that human decency exists. Yep. <laughs> so when he says, why can't you all just be decent? And everyone in the movie who's been horrible and shitty and screwing each other over for a percentage this entire time, everyone sits down and goes, yeah, fair enough. You did not earn a Capra-esque ending here. This is not Capra-esque. No. At best, really this not. could have been like Sturges-esque, something like the Great McGinty, something that's kind of biting mm. and mean. But De Palma, man, he is not... He's not that kind of director. He's not a social... He, if he does social commentary, he does it through wild, pulpy thriller. And as yeah, a result, yeah. he's allowed to be really broad. Here, he's dealing with so many serious, relevant issues. So mm. many serious, relevant themes. So many things that really matter to real people on a daily basis. That his lack of nuance is borderline criminal here. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. To to yeah. A, take on this... I, I don't think this material would work very well. There was some talk about maybe doing this as a mini-series on Amazon a few years ago. Maybe if someone had done it who was talented oh, and clever. Sure. I, maybe possible, but yeah. this is a lot to bite off. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think De Palma was ever the right person to do this. He does he not is, have the tone. Yeah, there are contemporaries that were working at the same time yeah. as De Palma in the late 80s yeah. who could have done so much better well, with this. Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols would, yeah, Mike Nichols would have done great. Uh-huh. Uh, Verhoeven would have done great. Oh, my God. Can you uh, imagine how biting Verhoeven's version <laughs> would have been? Oh, yeah. my Verhoeven God. Verhoeven would have been great. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I imagine, I, here's, you know, here's one that I actually could imagine could do it. I don't mm-hmm. know if he would have done it at this point in his career. But I would love to see what Spike Lee would do with this because he would know who to be yeah. mad at. Spike Lee would have done. He, he can point fingers at everybody yeah. and have like the yeah. moral high ground, and yeah. you could you could keep the film centered while keeping it mean. Yeah, and uh, I think um, that would be really great. Uh, Spike Lee. Speaking of angry filmmakers, this was back when Oliver Stone was angry. Yeah, Oliver Stone would have done a good job with this. Been, I don't know if it's good. Um, it would have been interesting. That's for sure. Uh, but yeah, he's I, he's very abrasive. I don't know if he, I think he might have oversold it, but maybe. Uh, yeah, well, but would probably would have been better than this. Yeah, I mean, look, look at something like Natural Born Killer. It's like I'm going to use every camera that's ever been invented to yeah. make this movie. And uh, there's some uh, there was some rumor, excuse mm. me, or talk um, that Steven Spielberg was pursued for this, and I cannot, I do not want to see that movie. No, <laughs> that's, no. that's not good no, narrative material no. at all. Uh, yeah, Pollock would have done a good job on this. Pollock would have done okay. He doesn't really have a sense of humor like like that. Like he's no, but he would have made a good serious. I, I'm, not say, I'm not saying he hasn't made good yeah. comedies, but I think that's the thing. I think this needs to be a blistering satire. Okay. And Pollock has made comedy. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think he's a blistering satirist. Okay. Uh, and um, I think that's what we. I think I think Verhoeven is the best one I've heard so far. Ver, Verhoeven or Spike Lee? Yeah, Verhoeven I think those really two great, would have been yeah. just like perfect. Um, cause yeah, cause they're both very funny, very energetic filmmakers, but they also understand like rage and satire. They understand what's mm-hmm. important and mm-hmm. they know what, what not to make fun of. Right. Or at the very least, uh, what to make, what not to make fun of. You can like handle it in a funny way, but you have to keep the actual subject serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, it's hard to do. And boy, did the Palma whiff it. Uh, the bonfire of the vanities stinks. And I am amazed actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those movies where it was so high profile. And it was so, like, notorious, even at the Such time. Such a turkey, yeah. At the time, this was, like, completely despised. There were a few positive reviews here and there, but mostly people didn't like it and didn't and, make money. And, and even the positive reviews, I read a couple are, like, really super qualified. Pretty, pretty yeah. mild. Like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I, I think Ephraim Abraham was good, like, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Uh, so I was shocked that the Golden Raspberry Awards didn't call this the worst movie of the year. And I was like, what the hell the else? Golden, the Golden Raspberries, they go for the lowest hanging fruit. They, they do. Yeah, they, they, they never like, do anything subtle or nuanced. Like one year later, they would go after Hudson Hawk, and then mm. they would do an indecent proposal, which isn't even that bad. It's just stupid. Mm. Like, it's the, the cocktail had, well, like, had won. Like, mm. that's just kind of a dumb movie. It's not even that bad. It's just dumb. The the movie there were two movies that beat the Bonfire of the Vanities. There was a tie for worst oh, picture in no. nineteen ninety. One is a film I've actually never seen. Okay, uh, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Oh, my sister liked that movie. Did you like that movie? I, I didn't watch it. Okay. The other one, and this one, I have seen this movie, and uh, as hard as it may seem, this this actually is a worse movie than the Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, Ghosts can't do it. <laughs> Oh no! Have you seen Ghosts Can't Do It? Uh, I've I've seen a couple relevant scenes that make me vomit a little bit. Ghosts Can't Do It stars Anthony Quinn as a wealthy old man who is married to a young Bo Derek. And he dies. And his ghost hangs around for two reasons. One, he wants to find someone for Bo Derek to fuck. It's really gross. Uh, Two... He wants to help Bo Derek save his company from Donald Trump. <laughs> not himself. Yeah, not someone playing a Donald Trump type character. Literally Donald Trump playing himself. Mm. And the movie sells him as like the ultimate like deal maker. And like there's a bit where Bo Derek actually like wins one over at him and he's like Checkmate, you're very good. It's like you're like, oh god. And like even the credits say, yes, that was really Donald Trump. Mm. Like, yeah, thanks. The movie is he, he, almost and, unwatchable. And you, you, you know he insists on every single one of those things. I'm too. sure he did. The movie is nearly unwatchable. Bo Derek has to do some truly humiliating shit. Uh, Including acting with Donald Trump. Well, I wasn't going to go over there, but yes. Yeah. Uh, that movie is actually... Bonfire of the Vanities is a bad movie, but at least it feels like a real movie. I, would, I don't know if I can say that for Ghosts Can't Do It. You want to see one of the shittiest movies of the 1990s. <laughs> Boy, they, they peaked early with Ghosts Can't Do It. Like, it's really fucking awful. Um, but I digress. Mm. Um, but anyway, that is it for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club this week. Thank everybody uh, who has been joining us, obviously. And thank everybody who voted. Uh, every episode of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club is chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we pick a streaming service and we pick a category. And then uh, we each pick two nominees. And the only rule is it has to be on that streaming service, in that category, uh, genre, filmmaker, decade, whatever. Uh, and we each pick two films that we either have never seen or maybe we saw them once when we were kids and we barely remembered them. Yeah. We'll, we'll, have, we'll cut a little slack with that. Uh, and uh, next time, our nominees are all sci-fi films. That are available on Amazon Prime. So if you have the Amazon streaming service, you'll know that a lot of films are available, but you can only have to pay a couple of bucks to rent them. These are the ones that come free with the service right now. Yeah. Uh, and the current crop of nominees are The Apple. Which you've never seen. I, I have been waiting for a good opportunity mm. to see The Apple. I keep meaning to see it in theaters, but God only knows when that opportunity is ever going to come up again. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, The Apple is a spectacularly notorious sci-fi musical uh, mm -hmm. about uh, a couple of kids 
from from Moose Jaw, Canada. Yeah, come and to the big city. And they're going to become big rock stars, and of course, they're corrupted by people who are corrupting them. And music's bad, and it's the not, they're not just corrupted by people; they're corrupted by the devil. My apologies. Vladek Shabal plays Satan, and okay. they're they're like. And, and it's an Adam and Eve parable, hence the title, The Apple. All right. These in- innocents from Canada. It's considered one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, is, next up is... directed f- by Menachem Golem of, yeah. uh, of Golem Globus. That is the Canon film group. Yeah. Uh, next up is a, a film by Curtis Harrington, uh, who is a celebrated horror filmmaker from the 60s and 70s in particular. Uh, Queen of Blood, a.k.a. Planet of Blood. Uh, which is about vampires in space, and it is considered a direct inspiration for Ridley Scott's Alien. Never seen it, always wanted to. This might be my opportunity. Uh, and then you picked a couple of films. Uh, Joe Dante's The Explorers, mm. uh, which is about a couple of kids who end up getting mysterious messages from outer space and their dreams and decide to build a spaceship and investigate uh, into the into the farthest reaches of the galaxy. Build build a spaceship just in their backyard. Yeah, and go into space with it. Uh, I love this movie, and if we get to rewatch it, I'm really excited. But Whitney's never seen it, so that's never, exciting. Yeah, never seen Explorers. Uh, and then uh, lastly, a film I'm actually not very familiar with. So tell me a little bit about Message from Space. Message from Space. It's it's one of those cult movies that I always heard a lot about, and it has like a, a it's alien invasion flag. And, and it's uh, uh, Kinji Fukusaku who ended up doing uh, Battle Royale. That's right. Which probably what he's best known for now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, it's got, and it's got a really cool alien in it with a big blue head. <laughs> awesome. All right, so those are the options. Uh, that poll should be available uh, probably around the time this podcast goes live. And if you want to join us at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can vote for it. Even $1 a month uh, gets you the opportunity to vote for episodes of the Streaming Club and wow, Cancel Too Soon and other uh, various options as well. We also have a lot of exclusive shows over on the Patreon, including a show all about every single episode of the 1960s Batman, every single Star Trek ever made, uh, episode by episode. Uh, we're doing uh, podcasts about Disney, the Academy Awards, commentary tracks. Uh, we want to make sure our patrons have like a lot of extra stuff because yeah. we couldn't do any of these shows without you. And uh, we just want to make sure that you're well taken care of because we love every single one of you. And if you can't afford to be a patron, we love you too. Don't worry about that. I just want to make sure our patrons know that we appreciate their donations and their mm. sacrifice. So, um, But yeah, if you can't afford to join up, leave us a review wherever you find us. That would really, really help. Star rating, a couple of mm. sentences. Be honest, obviously. Um, and uh, of course, you can also find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Uh, I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want to send us an email, talk about anything we discussed on this episode or anything else you want to talk about, uh, you can always email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we might read your email on an upcoming episode of our podcast, mm. We've Got Mail. Uh, if you're a snail mail type person, we just love sending people snails. Uh, you can also uh, send us a letter or whatever you would like at uh, our P.O. Box. We have an actual mailing address now. It's the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. That's 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and also we have a, uh, uh, I have a soap store with M. Lapis da Silva. So if you want to head over to Etsy, look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. We have a lot of exciting uh, new soaps that we have debuted in the month of June. Some of them for Pride Month. Uh, there's a Father's Day gift set. Uh, there's a lot of really, really cool stuff out there. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. And thank you to everybody who has already uh, purchased some of our soap. The reviews have been really, really great so far. And we're very grateful to you. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be back next week with whichever wins the uh, sci-fi film on Amazon Prime wins the poll. Uh, that should be pretty clear on the Patreon page if you want to check it out and follow along. That should 
Pulse should run for only a day or two. So mm. should be easy to find out soon. And um, I guess that's that. Thanks for listening to the Streaming Club is how I've chosen to end this podcast today. Yeah. Yeah.